turn with me to John chapter 17. We are one more week in the high priestly prayer and uh, our, our last week in the, uh, in the upper room. We've been there for quite some time. There. Now I can see everybody. Um, so John 17, I want to We'll look at the last section of the High Priestly Prayer, John 17, verses 20 through 26. And Alan covered this in, in broad uh, scope a few weeks ago, and he, he touched on this aspect of unity, but I want to I camp out here um, because I think that it's, it's timely for us, um, and I think it's necessary, I think it's helpful. Um, and, and this is what Jesus prays for. And I'm going to read this, you know, here, here in a minute. But he, he begins the prayer by praying for himself as the high priest, the great high priest. And then he prays for the apostles. And in that is mixed in uh, application and things that are fitting for all believers. And then in this last section, he prays for all those who would believe because of the apostles' testimony, which is all Christians throughout all time. And what's interesting here is what he prays for is unity, that they would all be one. So I want to read this, and then I want to ask two questions um, from this text. There's so much more we could ask, but uh, I want to ask two questions from it. And then I'm going to give a summary of what I think Jesus is saying here, because as John writes, and, and as was customary in, in first century Jerusalem, first century Palestine, in conversation, things that were being said and what was being, and things that were talking, it was customary for them to sort of talk around a central idea rather than drive straight through it. And that kind of boggles our Western mind. We're usually used to A plus B equals C, very linear progression of thought. And so if you're going to speak about something, you speak directly to it. Whereas in their culture, you would sort of speak around the idea in order to try and get to the center of it. Again, that's kind of backwards for us. But you see John writing this way so much, and especially in his, in his later epistles, where he says something, and then he says something else, and then he repeats the first thing. And you see this sort of great one-liners, but it's very hard to go through and go A plus B equals C. You have to kind of hit each one in order to get around the central idea, pull those things together, and then draw out the central idea. Like I said, it's a little backwards from the way that we are used to thinking because we weren't trained that way. It's not part of our culture. So in doing this, I want to read through this text, and then I want to sort of summarize, hopefully do the legwork for you, summarize what I think Jesus is driving at, and then I want to hit those key points and draw out from what Jesus prays what's in there. Okay, so I hope that that's, that's helpful for us. All right, so let me... Uh, let me read this then. Uh, John 17, verse 20 through 26. Jesus praying says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He's talking about the apostles. Do not ask, ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you've given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me from before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father God, there is so much encouragement here for us, so much instruction, so much that we can just be saturated with. I pray that your word would wash over us, that we'll take a moment to 
be reminded of the glories of your love displayed in Christ. That you might become a little more clearer for us in who you are. Your grandeur, your majesty, your preciousness, your grace and your mercy and your love and your justice and all of your attributes. That we might see you a little more clearly today than we did yesterday. And that might fuel in us greater divinely inspired love for fellow believers, for one another, for those who are lost. For the world, both locally and globally, that we might cherish the privilege of putting on display your glory through the expression of love to the lost world, that others might see Jesus, treasure Him, be brought to faith, and that you would be exalted in their lives, that they would have their joy made, made, be made full and your glory magnified. So would you do this for us this morning as we dive into your word? It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. So the first question is, what unifies the church? What unifies the church? I think this is timely for us because we're in a situation in America where there are lots of churches, and that word is very, very broad right now, and yet there is very little gospel. There are a lot of churches, but very little gospel and there's division all over the place there's division amongst denominations there's division amongst even outside of evangelical churches where where other where other belief systems have borrowed from that term and placed it upon themselves we're in a culture where dominant christian mega churches and mega denominations who have had a wonderful track record, if I can use that term in a past, or at least have given, have, have appeared to be given a, a track record of growth in the past, are crumbling. There's division, there's breaking apart, and the outside world is looking at this and going, nope, Christianity doesn't work. They don't look at the church and see what Jesus prays for. And in the Bible Belt where we are, the squeeze is being put on cultural and nominal Christianity and it is falling apart. I've spoken with pastors and shared text messages with them in other parts of the southeast and they're just blown away by how many people in churches are fading away in just this past year because of coronavirus. And that's not to say there are not legitimate you know, limitations. There's not to say that people who don't attend church are automatically lost and falling away. But it is to say there is a testimony. When we do not gather what Alan spoke about, there is a nature of being prone to wander and we must guard against it. And so there's a squeeze that's being put on there. And so it asks, begs the question for us, what unifies the church? What draws us together when we look out and we read articles or we, we attend a visiting church or we're in one place or another and we say this is not, this doesn't convey unity. This doesn't convey what I'm reading in the scriptures about what Christ prayed for the church. So we have to ask what, what unifies the church? What, what unifies and brings together a church that's in Bangladesh? that's in Greer, South Carolina, that's in Peru, that's in Pakistan, that's in China, that's in Ireland, that's in Canada. You name all of these places. If you were to go and visit or you were to have someone come and visit your church, as Candy did today, and give testimony, how do you know? What is it that unifies? What is it that you listen for? That you say, this is a church. This is a gospel-centered church where Christ is being exalted. What is it that unifies that church? And then the second question, I think, that naturally flows from that. If what we're seeing in our culture is disunity, is crumbling, is a falling apart, if we're in a culture that is post-Christian, and that's not to say that Christianity has failed, 
but the dominant worldview is no longer stems from a Christian worldview. If this is what we're seeing, then has Christ's prayer for unity failed? Because this is what he prays for. This is what he prays for for the church with the big C. This is what he prays for for the church with the big C that's made up of local churches, local expressions of the global body. This is what he prays for for the church in 2020. When he says all those who believe through their word, through the apostles' word, this is what he prays for. He prays that they would be one. So has Christ's prayer failed? Now I'm going to answer that at the end. Okay, I'll answer that at the end. You could probably guess where I'm going, but I'm going to get there. If I just answer it, you know, then you go home early. So and I want to encourage you. I want to stir you up. So we're going to go there. Um, but let's ask that question. What unites the church? So let me give you just a, just a summary of what I believe Jesus is saying here. Remember what I said. The way John writes and the way people in the culture in Jesus' day would get to a central idea would be to talk around it. And so you have these one-liner statements or these central statements and then John, John or as John is writing, Jesus prays and then he says the same thing but he may add one or two things to it. Okay, and so he's getting around a central idea here, a central vision of unity, but he's getting, uh, he's getting at it in a roundabout way. So I, w- I want to give you what I think is a summary of what Jesus is saying in these six verses, what he's praying for. What is it that unites the church? What is it that Jesus is praying? Father, make them one in this way. I think what he's saying is that the love of God known through Christ and expressed amongst its people is what displays the glory of God to the world. Let me say that again. What unites the church? The love of God known through Christ and expressed amongst its people, which displays the glory of God to the world. Now, what I want to do is I want to argue that summary from these verses. And I'm just going to take it in three parts. First part being the love of God known through Christ. Second part, that same love being expressed amongst its people. And then the third part, that displaying the glory of God to the world. Okay? At its core, this is very simple, okay, but it's very rich. It's a well that a child can dip a cup from from the top and drink from, but the strongest swimmer cannot plumb its depths. And so I want to dig into that this morning, okay? So let me give that just summary one more time. I'll come back to it at the end, but I think it's so crucial. It's like I said, we can read John very easily and just kind of get lost in all that's there. So I hope this will help unpack what Jesus is praying for. What is it that unites the church? What is it that brings together the local expressions of the global body of believers? What unites the church is the love of God known through Christ and expressed amongst its people, which displays the glory of God to the world. Okay? So let's walk walk through this. The first part, the love of God known through Christ. Notice that when Jesus prays this, the source of this unity that he's talking about, it's within the Trinity itself. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, I pray, uh, he says, I'm not asking on behalf of these alone, but for, uh, for those who also who will believe, through, th- uh, believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And so the source of that unity begins within the Trinity itself. The love, the glory, the joy are all bound up from eternity past. Okay, now Jesus isn't talking about modalism, right? He, he's not talking about that he and the Father are one, as in, you know, God was one and then he became, you know, the Father and then he became the Son. No, no, that's modalism. That, that's, no, we don't believe that. There's tr- a Trinitarian uh, uh, aspect to the Godhead. Now, you know, we could go off on a tangent and argue that all day long, but let me just point back to one verse that Jesus himself prays in this very prayer, in this very chapter, to show you that Jesus is talking about equality but distinction. Look at verse 3 in chapter 17. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. He's talking about the Father there. 
That's who he referenced in the beginning of the prayer. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So later he, he speaks of equality. Here he speaks of distinction. There's tension there, but there's no disagreement. Okay? So there's an, equal, there's an equality there, but there's also distinction. So the Father and the Son are equal in their essence. Think of it this way. God is love by nature. Right? This is what John writes later in his first epistle. God is love. It's in his nature. It's in his very essence. But we, as his image bearers, we're called to love one another in order to display God's essence to the world. It's not in our nature. Right? right? Your, your children may do kind and loving things, but you have to foster that within you. Right? You don't have to be around kids or have kids for very long to see that, yep, that's true. No, you, you, you foster that within your children. It's not in our nature. It's not in our nature. There is a longing and a hungering for that, but it is not in our nature. It betrays the fact that we were created in the image of God, who by his nature is love. And so we're called to be, uh, uh, we're, we're called to display the essence of God's love to the world. So the source of the unity of the church begins within the Trinity itself because the, the essence and the nature of God is love. That's one of the primary things that he wants the church to reflect. And so here's what Christ did. Christ, in the love that's shared between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Christ comes to earth in the incarnation. And what does he say he's done? He says that he has manifested the Father's name. This is what he prays earlier in verse 6. He says, Father, I've manifested your name to the, who, to the men whom you've given, to, given me. <clears throat> He's manifested the Father's name. He's made God known more fully. More fully. You have types and shadows in the Old Testament that give a picture of who God is. Okay? But there's a limitation there. One of the greatest examples of that is the fact that where was the Shekinah glory of God housed? Where was it once the temple was created? It was in the Holy of Holies. There's a veil there. You can't get to it. Right? And all of Jerusalem knew this. We could only get this far in knowing and seeing the glory of God. But there's a veil that's there. And it, isn't it so fitting that when Christ came and he was crucified on the cross, what happened? The veil in the temple was torn. He came to manifest the Father to us, to make God more fully known and knowable in his in incarnation. And so Jesus says, I've come to manifest you, manifest your word to these men, and these men have believed it. They believed it. The apostles believed the word which was given to Christ. And Christ prays that they would be set apart in truth, right? The truth of rightly knowing God through Jesus. This is what Alan talked about, one of the things Alan talked about last week, right? Were key truths from, uh, from God's Word, that God is holy, that His Word is true, and the Lordship of Christ, right? Those were three key points from Alan's sermon. See, Alan, I paid attention. And... And so, so the apostles would be set apart in this truth about what Jesus displayed about who God was or who God is. And the truth of rightly knowing God through Christ. And that this knowledge would have an expulsive and radiant impact on others. Right? What follows from where Jesus prays, says, you know, sanctify them in truth. And then the next verse he says, I'm not asking on behalf of them. <coughs> that they're being set apart in the truth of who you are, known through me. Not that that would be isolated, but that that, that would be, have a going outness for those who would believe through their word. Do, do you see that, right? When we talk about words, we talk about information, we talk about knowledge, we transfer that through language. And it's fitting that Christ is the word, right? He is the revelation of God. And so the Father gives Christ the word, the revelation. He is to display and put on display the fullness of who God is. The apostles believe the word. And then their word now 
becomes a revelation of who Christ is when Christ is crucified and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Do you see how this works, right? And so that was the goal. That was the, the point. And so the glory that was given to Christ was the privilege of making the Father known to the world. Do you see what he says in verse 22, right? He says, he prays, I pray that they would all be one. Pray that they would all be one. <coughs> in verse 22, he says, the glory which you've given to me, I've given to them that they may be one just as we are. Don't you love that? I mean, this is how John writes. He writes one thing, and then he kind of says the same thing just in a different way, you know. And for me in my brain, I'm just going, just say the thing you mean, <laughs> you know. But he, there's so much rich, richness there. The glory of Christ was the privilege of making the Father known to the world. Right? Didn't you, as we've been through John, don't you see Jesus takes great joy in displaying the Father to people. It is His joy to do the will of the Father. It is His glory, it is His crown to submit to the will of the Father and, and, and exalt Him. And the Father praises the Son for it. It was His glory to display the love of God and the grace and the mercy of God, the justice of God, the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, all of these things displayed in Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. And so it's fitting then that we're unified in knowing the love of God through Christ. Let me give you one example of this. Look at first or Second Peter verse four. Second Peter four. I'll, I'll start in verse one because here's what I I, I want to point out because Peter's talks about partaking of the divine nature. What, what does that look like to partake of the divine nature? I mean, we're not omniscient. We're not omnipotent. There are characteristics of God which he does not share with his image bearers, right? There's a unity there that's talked about, but there's also very much a distinction, right? The picture in heaven is not that we become little gods. No, there's very much a distinction. God the Father is still God the Father in the picture in heaven. God the Son is still very much God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Spirit. And we are more fully His image bearers. But there is still a distinction there. And so Peter uses almost a very risky language to say we're partakers of the divine nature. What does he mean? Verse 1, Peter writes and he says, To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Remember, he's an apostle. By the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called, you, who, him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these, by His grace and mercy to give you the true knowledge of who he is for by these he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by then you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the correction the corruption that is in this world by us let me tell you what i think he's saying that we are partakers of the divine knowledge through the true knowledge of christ being then given the glory and the precious gift of uh, of, of displaying him to the world. I think that's what he means because that's what Christ modeled and that is what Christ prays for the church. That the glory that I've had in being able to display to the world who you are, Father, now that I'm coming and seating at your right hand, you're going to send your Holy Spirit to indwell believers. May they have that same glory, that same privilege, that same crown of being conduits of your mercy and your grace and your love because they experience it, because they know you. Not just in a head knowledge, like we read a book, right? I mean, we don't just get a book that says, here's your basic instructions before leaving earth. So you remember that old song. 
B-I-B-L-E, right? Okay? It's so much more than that. We weren't just given a book. We're given a person. We're given Christ. If all we needed was information, we would have just had the Old Testament law. But we needed Christ to put on display who God is for us. The richness of His mercy and His grace and His love for us so that we would be then indwelt with Him. So that first part that Christ prays, what unifies the church is, is knowing the love of God through Christ. But there's a second part of that. To be, that that love then would be expressed among the church's people. Jesus had previously given this new commandment to the apostles. John 13, 34, Jesus' new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. So do you see that? That Well, let me give you this. And you connect that, that instruction to love one another. And this, Jesus said this multiple times. We've gone through this multiple times already in John. But he gives this command to the apostles. Love one another as I have loved you. And we connect that with just this, with this prayer. We see that the eternal love that the Father has for the Son is meant to then be cast on to believers. That they would then in turn love one another in that same manner. So look at verse 23. Jesus says, he's again praying for unity. So I pray that they would be perfected in unity. They would be brought to completion in unity. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you have loved me. And then verse 24. This is a desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you've given me for... You loved me before the foundation of the world. So the eternal love of the Father for the, son, for the Son, that's the foundation of the church's love amongst itself. And again, Christ not only made, made God known in word and truth, in knowledge, but in practice and in action. As the old DC talk song says, love is a verb. It has action to it. And Christ making, known, making God known was to impart his love to believers and share in that divine love. Verse 26, Jesus brings, he, he's, he's connecting these, these themes of glory, love, and unity. You see how he's talking around these central themes in order to get at them. Verse 26, he says, I've made your name known to them. I've manifested you. And I will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ making God known was to impart his love to believers so that they might share in the divine love. And let's step back a minute and look because this is, this is the glory of the church and her future joy. To know the love of God and have the privilege of being able to share that love amongst one another. Right? And that's the, the full experience of the love of God through the Son. That's what we look forward to. Isn't it? Right? Look, Jesus prayed this just, or just earlier, right? He says, uh, let's see, where is it? Hang on. Yeah, in verse, uh, verse 3, nope, I wrote that down wrong. <laughs> I'll find it, hang on. Well, he tells, he tells the apostle, he, he prays and he says, I, I go to prepare a place for you. Oh, I'm sorry, that's in chapter 14. Get your notes together, Austin. Chapter 14, verse 3, he says to the apostles, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And I'll come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And here he prays. He takes a little detour from this theme of unity. And he prays passionately to the Father. In verse 24, he says, Father, I desire. Don't let that word kind of over, you know, overskip you. Look at the tenderness and, and the love which, with, which, the, uh, which Christ has for his bride. 
that word desire has, has in it a, 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 a longing for. There is a longing uh, for, uh, for Christ that where he is, his bride would be also. He says, a desire that they also, whom you've given to me, that they would be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you've given me. And this is the future joy that the church has, that we have, is to see the glory of Christ in all of its fullness. Just take a sample of, uh, of some of these things from Scripture. Psalm 90.16 says, Let your works and your majesty be displayed to your children. Psalm 26.8 says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Psalm 27.4, One thing I've asked of the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And behold the beauty of the Lord and meditate in his temple. Psalm 16, 11, In your presence is the fullness of joy. Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. And this is something that we are being shaped into, is it not? 1 John 3, 2 says, We shall be like him, Christ. We will be like him, when he returns, for we'll see him as he is. Second Corinthians three, eighteen, Paul says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So this is the joy and the glory of the church is to have the privilege of being able to be the conduit of God's love and express his love and his nature amongst ourselves but then that also has an expulsive power that's supposed to go out to the rest of the world and this is the last part that that same knowing God and being the expression of him and his particularly his love puts on display the glory of God to the world Right? This is the purpose, that the purpose of our knowing and expressing the love of God is so that the world may see and know the wonder and the majesty of who God is. This is, this is what, Paul or what Jesus prays here, that they would be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. That the world may know that you sent me and loved them. That Christ in you ought to have an overflowing impact on those around you to the glory of God. Let's look at one other text. This, I think, that helps capture this. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, 27. I'll, I'll back up and put this in context as Paul prays. And this is a common prayer. You look in uh, Ephesians, I think you look in Galatians 2, maybe, or Philippians. You'll see the same kind of prayer where Paul just... He, he, he brackets his ministry. This is, this is what I was set apart for. And he says in verse 24, chapter 1, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of the body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Do you hear that? Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I endure, endure all things for the sake of the glory of God, that people might know God through Christ, believe in him, and that God would be glorified. This is, this is what I'm set apart for. I'm a gospel to the Gentiles. And here he explains it. He says, that is, here's the preaching of the word, that is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. Okay, right, you get, you, you get that mystery of the gospel and who God is was veiled in the Old Testament. Now Christ has come, you know, uh, uh, born, died, re uh, resurrected, Holy Spirit to come, become clear. Now Paul says, now, now we're just, now we're getting this out. Now we're getting this out. We're getting this out. It's a mystery that was veiled. Now it's made clear. Now we're making it known. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Listen to this part. This is key. Which is Christ in you. 
the hope of glory. Do, do you see that? That Paul says, here's my mission, the preaching of the gospel, to plant churches, but not that those churches would become comfortable, not that those churches would be identified primarily by their ethical alignment, not by their ordinances, not by their practices, but as the global church finds its expression, as local believers come to believe and then gather together and worship and love one another, that that has an expulsive power of love that goes out to the lost, and that is Christ in you. That the love of the fa- that which the Father has for the Son, that has its expression in the church, that is Christ in you, and it then manifests itself to the world and makes God known. That's what Paul longed for. That's what he hoped for. That's why he left one church. He'd plant the church in Ephesus. He'd stay there a couple of years. I gotta go. I gotta go to Macedonia. I gotta go to over here. I gotta go to Spain, he tells the Romans. I'm leaving you to now be that expression, now to manifest God's glory to the world. Do that church. I'll see you in a, in a few years. And he'd go and he'd plant another church. This is why missionaries go overseas. We're going to go, we're going to plant a church here that God's glory and His love would be known and would be manifested to the world and that others would, be, would see this and would be drawn to God through the gospel. That's why we share Christ with others, co-workers, family members. that Christ would have an overflowing impact on those around us to the glory of God. This is what Jesus prays for. This is what unifies the church. So those are the three things I think that Jesus is praying for the Father for. He's praying robustly for it. He's praying with tenderness. You see that in just the language that he used. He knows the opposition that the world and that Satan is putting up. And so he prays hard for this. said I'd come back to that summary. What is it that unites the church? The love of God known through Christ and expressed amongst its people, which displays the glory of God to the world. That's what unites the church. And so the, quest, the question then is, which I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> has Christ's prayer failed? He prays for unity, that they would be one. Has it failed? No. No, because where the, the church, where the local expression of the global body it, uh, does exist, the larger, broader, big church exists. Because it's united under that. Where that's happening, the church exists. God's power exists. And where it does not, there is no church. Regardless of what name is on the outside. Regardless of what may be said on a website. Regardless of how many people attend. The church is made up of the local uh, uh, expression, which is made up of its people, right? And so to drive this all the way home, therefore where individuals know and express the love of God and that overflows to the world, there the church exists and will naturally gather together and look to the word and say, what does it mean to gather together? We practice the ordinances. We listen to the preaching, have our hearts stirred so that we turn, then turn around and go out and love one another, and that that, ex- that, that that love explodes over or f- overflows into love for others and love for the lost. Where that's happening, the church is. You'll find a church there where people want to know God and know Him through Christ and where they begin to love one another and where that overflows into love for the lost. You'll find a church and where that doesn't happen, you'll find something else. It won't be a church, but you'll find something else. So Christ's prayer has not failed. But there's a lot of places where we can go where we don't find a church. 
And this is what God does in his sifting work. You find this in the pattern of history, right? Uh, the church is robust. It's strong. The clarity occurs. There's not always agreement, right? Paul says we, we, we see dimly, but we do still see, right? Clarity occurs, and then the church gets comfortable, right? This happened in the Old Testament. Israel would get comfortable, right? And, and the... It, it would no longer be clear. It would become foggy and very opaque on the outliers. And then God would shift things. Something would happen in the culture. Something would happen from the outside or within that would unsettle the group. And there would be, become clarity. There, The gospel would become more clear. God would become more clear. And so let me just bring a couple points of application. One, Haven Ridge, we have to check ourselves. Are we doing this? It does no good to just say we're a church if we're not going back to what that vision looks like and saying, are we doing this? Do we find ourselves unified under this vision that Christ is praying for the church? Because it's only under this vision that the power of God actually occurs. I hope and pray that we are. I, I believe that we are. I'm thankful for every single one of you. I'm thankful for Alan and his vision for Christ and clear gospel preaching and teaching and edification. Right? That's the goal of our preaching. As Peter says later in 2 Peter 1, he says that as long as I'm alive, as long as there's breath in this body, I will seek to stir you up by way of reminder. Right? If you're a Christian, you gather this is what we do, is we remind one another, because we're so prone to forget. We remind one another. That's the purpose of our trellises, our structural frameworks that we as a small local expression of that global body have in place, to foster opportunities for the love of God to have its expression, both within the church body and without. And we can say with John that we have no greater joy than this, than to hear of you walking in the truth. We hear stories of people and the love of God going forward and Christ being manifested. People growing in the grace and knowledge of truth and then turning around and being an expression of that. That gives us great joy. Yes, this is where the church is happening. We want to be here. We want to draw people to that. It's a check for us as Haven Ridge. It's a check for us personally. So I have to ask myself and ask you, how are you doing? What are you doing with this vision in your life? I know, I know, it. it <laughs> if you're like me, some days you're like, Austin, it's hard enough just for me to get through the day. You know, this didn't escape God in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and they fell. He knew it would be a battle from that day forward. That's why Jesus prays here. He prays because he knows this isn't going to come easy for saints. He knows that the deck is going to be completely stacked against him. It will take a divine work of God in order for this unity to happen. That's why he prays for it. Right? If we could do this on our own, he wouldn't pray for it. That's why he prays for it. So know that. Know that. Know that Jesus knows this was a battle and this is why he prays for it. And we ought to fight for that in our daily lives. So are you setting this as your per personal mission, to know God and to mirror His love for others? Are you feeling disconnected? There's a lot of reasons for that, but that's as far as being applicable for us today, if there's a disconnectedness from the mission of God, there will be a disconnectedness from the church of God. If you're not on the same mission as what Christ is on, you're going to be disconnected from a church that's on mission for that same vision of Christ. And then secondly, I encourage you to sanctify your day for this unifying purpose. It's so, it's so easy to start off the day. Alarm clock goes off, hits news. I do it too. It's okay. No. And then you get up and it's like, okay. We've got to start the day. We've got, we, you know, we got so many things we've got to get done in today, and there's only so many hours, you know. 
so many things to get going. You're going to have my time in the Word? You know, okay, check, that's done. Okay, now move on to the next thing. You know, but I encourage you, do whatever's necessary to sanctify your day by setting it apart for that vision. If that is sitting down and restructuring your time with the Lord and saying, Lord, I've got stuff to do. It's necessary. You know, it, there's, there, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be push against your vision. Give me clarity. Give me opportunity. Help me see. In the little bit of time I have in your word, give me opportunities. Don't let me miss opportunities to make you known to others today. Help me do that with my children. Help me do that with my spouse. Help me do that with my friends, my family, my coworkers. Father, sanctify today for your purposes. I have things I need to get done, but you have bigger things. And I might easily miss those. Help me set apart today for that. And then lastly, I encourage you to have an awareness of this unifying purpose. If you're like me and you're detail-oriented, it's so easy to get lost in the weeds and you lose the bigger picture. And sometimes we need to come back to the bigger vision. You know, when Alan and I set up teams and we have uh, meetings with team leaders, we have meetings with missional community leaders, we always go back to these visions. So here's the vision for your team. Remember this. Here's the vision for missional community. Okay, how are we doing this? We have to be have an awareness of this unifying purpose and then ask ourselves, are we doing this? Are we making efforts in our daily life to be conscious of this unifying purpose? How about how you conduct yourself with others? Are you aware of your conduct and how that conduct influences others? Either, either that displaying the love of God and His grace and His mercy or displaying something else. And, and that, that could have all kinds of manners of, uh, uh, of, of uh, manifesting itself. But are you conscious of that in the way that you go about your life? Or is for you manifesting the love of God only happen when you pray for someone? Or when you send a text message to someone with a scripture verse? Or only when you're in worship or in a small group? Or is there about your rhythm of life a drumbeat that beats that way? That says, Lord, everything that I do, every, every manner that I have, I want to roll up into the praise of your name. Because when we get to heaven, that's what it'll be. You'll eat food to the glory of God. You know, you'll sit next to someone to the glory of God. You'll brush your hair to the glory of God. I don't know what that's going to look like. I can't tell you the last time I brushed my hair. You know, but all of these things will, will roll up into the praise of his name. And so we got to have that as our overarching purpose. Is Lord, help me to move and live in such a way that this becomes more and more the drumbeat of my life. But what did you post on social media? So easy for us to hit click and post something and leave it because we think it's funnier, because we think that, oh, yeah, that sticks it to the man or, you know, what, whatever. This hits a, a particular political aspect or point that, you know, we just really want to harp on. And we don't realize it's actually not edifying and offensive to another brother or sister in Christ. What you post on social media is a display to the world of who God is. If, if people know that you are a Christian, that's what it is. All day long. Be aware of that. Don't put things up that might cause another brother or sister to stumble. It may mean, well, I don't get to have that much fun. Sorry, go get some ice cream. That's fun. No. You have an opportunity to display the glory of Christ. Use that. Use that. And then lastly, walk with purpose. We were on a hike yesterday, and uh, we're trying to get out of the woods. It's dark. Wonderful story. I'll share it another time. Um, but uh, trying to get the kids out of the, you know, out was not dark yet, but we're getting there and uh, running short on time and telling my kids, you know, walk with purpose, walk with purpose. And one of them turns to me and she says, that's what the principal says when we're walking down the hall. I said, she's a smart lady. Listen to her. Now, move, move with purpose. Move with purpose. I encourage you to establish rhythms in your life that put Christ on display. 
I encourage you to, def- to feed your desire to know God. And as you do that and you're renewed in your mind, you'll find your rhythms changing. It's the whole purpose of that knowing God through Christ then informs our life and changes it. And we begin to display him. That's when Jesus says that he manifested the Father to the, to the, to the apostles. That's what happened. Right? All right, well, let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Father God, as we come to a close, I pray that, I know I've, I've painted with a broad brushstroke this overarching vision, and I know there are things that we could add to it, maybe cast it more clearly, but where you have us today, here at the end of Jesus' prayer, this vision for unity. Pray, Father, that you would help us as a church and as individuals lay hold of this vision, cling to it more tightly. That, Father, we would never pursue unity at the expense of truth. Because as one theologian has said, unity purchased at the expense of truth is not worthy of its name. And Father, we feel the pull from the culture and the particularly the the, the quote-unquote Christian culture to sacrifice truth for the goal of unity. But if we're honest and we look at the Scriptures and we look at what Christ has prayed for and your desire doesn't actually achieve a unity in which you are displayed as most glorious. It may exalt a man-centered religion in the end, but not you. So, Father, may we, may we be clear on what hills to die on. May we be clear on tertiary issues on which we can agree to disagree because we see in a veil dimly. And we can still have fellowship with others who are clearly love Christ and know Him, have a desire to make Him known and to display your love to the lost that others might know Jesus, have their joy be made full, and that you would be glorified. We might still have fellowship with them, even though we may disagree on some other issues. Father, would you unify us in this? I pray that our church would be able to look out and be able to recognize other local expressions of your global body, affirm them, give encouragement. Father, I pray that none of those who are here would ever be drawn away to a false church. Father, I ask the same thing that Christ asked. Would you keep us? Would you unify us? Just as you are one, equality with distinction, Father, would you make us one? Would we demonstrate and express your love to the world for your glory and in this fine unity that we would know your love more deeply and more richly through your Son, Jesus Christ. I ask all these things and even so much more than I can even fathom. It's in Christ's precious name that I pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance towards you. May he give you peace. You're dismissed.